Amen. If you have your Bibles, Luke 15, there could not be a better song as we open God's Word this morning. That was absolutely amazing. A uh, couple of things, though, before we jump into the Word. And uh, if you're new, by the way, my name is Brad Jackson, uh, senior pastor here, and it is so good to have you all here this morning. A couple of things before we jump in. One is we want to do this just uh, semi-consistently so you know where we're at and what's going on. And uh, But this is... In the Tidings, which is our monthly publication, so we encourage you to, if you don't get that, to sign up for that. But give you just a quick financial update about where we are. And so we have a July 1st budget year, which is pretty normal in the church world. And where we're at to this point is our actual income is 263000 and the expenses are almost exactly in line with that. And uh, our budgeted to this point of the year is 341000 and the reason is, if you've been around the church, there's just sort of an ebb and flow to church life, seasons of higher giving, giving seasons of higher spending. And when we say budget, it's sort of the all of what happens here. It's salaries, it's what makes this building have lights that turn on, it's our missions, it's, it's numerous different things. And so that's sort of the all-encompassing idea of budget. And uh, as we look at that, and, that's, and we're, we're in a good, healthy place financially, as we look at that, we want to say a few things. One is, we want to say thank you. Uh, many, many of you give sacrificially, generously, consistently, and we thank you very much for that, whatever that is for you. Uh, we have a lot of new people sort of coming in and, and, and uh, to cross you through these doors, and we want to encourage you to think about being part of this. We believe God is doing something really special here, and uh, we think part of our worship is giving financially back to God. So we encourage you to think about giving. And uh, for those of you that don't know, it's 2015, and we also have online giving, and uh, that just makes it easier for all of us, so we do encourage you towards that as well. And then the last piece is... In a church like ours, a significant part of our yearly giving is year-end giving. So as we head towards December, and I just even hate saying that line, December, winter, all of that. Uh, but as we head towards that place, we encourage you, if that's the place where you give some of your, your giving, we encourage you to think about making Crossview part of what you would give towards that year-end. So that's number one. Number two, and this is more importantly, so let's get our serious faces on, uh, Last two years, I've been here a little over two years at Crossview, and we've been talking a lot about church health. And when we talk about church health, we talk about relational health, not gossiping, not triangulating, spiritual health, missional health, emotional, all these different things. And so um, as we talk about church health, today is one of those days where church health is going to be tested. And um, the reason I say that is I'm a Denver Bronco fan, and most of you are Vikings fans. And so what I, what I want to ask of you is next Sunday when we come to church and the Broncos have won, um, I want to ask you to be Christian, okay? If the Vikings win, I will not be preaching next week. So um, I had to get something in, you know. Uh, it is so good to be together. Luke chapter 15, we are in the third week of a series that we're calling I Believe, and we're looking at things that get in the way of us truly believing, and we define believing as simply trusting in Jesus, putting your confidence in who Jesus is, what he did, all that he is. And this morning, as we look at Luke 15, this text that probably most of you, even if you didn't grow up in the church, you've heard of the story of the prodigal son, this text that we know. And this morning, we want to talk about what gets in the way of believing often is our sin, our shame. 
You see, we all look good when we gather on Sunday morning, but if we, if we all had to come in, up here to this table and say, sort of lay out all of our sin, all of our brokenness, all of our shame, all of our pride, all of our arrogance, and name it, it would be a different story. And so we want to think about the fact that that often gets in the way of us truly believing and trusting in Jesus. I remember a number of years ago, the church I was at up in, up in the city was in the, uh, the suburb of Edina. And you've probably heard Edina stands for every day I need attention, right? You guys have heard that, right? Okay, if you haven't, again, let's make sure we cut that from the sermon piece uh, when we go to record. Uh, but, you know, Edina is sort of a fluent area. And uh, I remember meeting with the, this lady, and she came in, she's around my age, and She'd been going through some health issues, but sort of just, just real classy, really sharp, amazing follower of Jesus. One of those people you look to and they just get it, they got it, they have it all together. And we were talking and at a certain point in the conversation, she started breaking down, um, which for me is always uncomfortable when somebody breaks down in my office. But she started breaking down a little bit and crying and, and she looked at me and she said, Brad, how can God actually love? And it hit me that even for those of us that often look like we have it all together, that we have it figured out, that deep down, if we're honest, and if this whole Christian thing is true, we wonder how this almighty, all-powerful God could actually love us. If this God truly knows who I am, what I think, what I've done, what I did this week, can that God actually love me? And so we come to this story. It's actually a parable, and a parable is simply a story that, 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 that makes a, a, a simple point. As we come to this parable that we've probably all heard before, my hope and prayer is that we hear it anew and afresh. That God will speak through this familiar text a new word. Father, as we look into your word, God, would you take these familiar words and paint a new picture for us of who you are? Not only of who you are, of how you move towards us, how you see us, God. Pray that you do this in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And all God's people said, Amen. The chapter, chapter 15 of Luke has three parables. And we're going to look at the third of these three parables, but we need to look at verses 1 and 2 so we understand the context of why Jesus is talking about these parables. Verse 1 says this, Tax collectors and other notorious sinners, that's such good wording, notorious sinners, often came to listen to Jesus preach. This made the Pharisees and teachers of religious law complain that he was associating with such sinful people, even eating with them. So in the first century in Israel, they were waiting for a Messiah. Messiah simply met a deliverer, some who'd come and free them from Roman oppression, and all of Israel, all of Judaism was waiting for that. In different ways. The Pharisees thought the Messiah will come when we get completely pure. When we obey all 500 plus laws, then God will be pleased with us. We will have earned God's favor and God will come and make things right, free us from Roman oppression. All will be good. And Jesus is coming claiming to be this Messiah. And so you can naturally think the Pharisees don't like how he is acting as Messiah, as deliverer. He's coming and he's going against numerous laws. He's eating with people that he's not supposed to eat with. 
And so that's sort of the setup of the story. This, this whole thing that Jesus is saying that he is all about doesn't make sense in their eyes. And so much of the story is to interact with who they are. And we know really practically that the older and younger brother, the older brother sort of represents the Pharisees, and the younger brother represents the common, sinful, notorious sinners that Jesus is eating with. Verse 11 says this, to illustrate, illustrate the point for In other words, the third story. Jesus told them this story. A man had two sons. The younger son told his father, I want my share of your estate now before you die. In the first century, to ask for your inheritance before your father had died is essentially saying, Dad, I want you dead now. Big story. So he asked for his inheritance. His father agreed to divide his wealth between his two sons. A few days later, this younger son packed all his belongings, moved to a distant land, and there he wasted all his money in wild living. About the time his money ran out, a great famine swept over the land and he began to starve. He persuaded a local farmer to hire him, and the man sent him into the field to feed the pigs. The young man became so hungry that even the pods he was feeding the pigs looked good to him, but no one gave him anything. When he finally came to his senses, he said to himself, at home, even the hired servants have food enough to spare, and here I am dying of hunger. I will go into my father and say, Father, I have sinned against both heaven and you. I am no longer worthy of being called your son. Please take me as your hired servant. This is the part of the story that probably most of us are familiar with. The son who says, Dad, I wish you were dead, gets his sum of money, goes off to some foreign land and spends it on things that he shouldn't have spent it on. On a lifestyle that just didn't make sense. The story actually gets good in verse 20. So he returned home to his father. Remember how he's returning home. He's returning home and his plan is simply to say, let me be a servant in your household. That's all I'm asking for. So he returns home and while he was still a long way off, his father saw him coming. One of the most beautiful images in all of scripture. And we can imagine it. If you were a parent who has waited for a child to come home after curfew, wondering what has happened, they wouldn't answer their phone, and you're sitting there looking through the curtain out the front window, wondering when they're going to make it, are they okay? You get this story. The father is on the back porch, pacing back and forth, most probably looking, wondering, hoping, praying, asking God, please God, do something, help my child to come home. That's the image here. This father is waiting for this younger son who said, I wish you were dead, to come home. It tells us something about the father. And then he sees him. Filled with love and compassion, he ran. That's one of those, there's a number of words here, but I mean circle, a long way off. Circle ran, circle embrace, circle kiss, because they all have significant meaning even in this parable. The reason that he ran is because in the first century, if you committed the crime that the, old, the younger son committed, if you went to a parent and said, I want my inheritance now before you're dead, and you did what he did and then you came back, what would happen is this. The elders of your village, when you got back to town, would take you to the center of the village. They would take this piece of pottery and they would break it at your feet, banishing you from the life of the village forever. And so this wealthy man in the story, the father, sees his son, lifts up his robe, and runs towards his son to spare him any shame and embarrassment. That word ran is such an important part of this story. 
Such an important word because it gets us at the heart of who this father is. So he, he runs towards him. He embraces him. One of the images that we'll talk about a little bit at the end is this idea of embrace. The intimacy of embrace. The openness. The, the being able to, to receive the embrace. And then he kissed him and said, you're still family. So his son said to him, Father, I have sinned against both heaven and you. I'm no longer worthy of being called your son. But his father said to the servants, this, if this doesn't put chills down your spine, I don't know what does. His father said to the servants, quick, bring the finest robe in the house. He just has to be a servant. And here's what the father does. Finest robe. Put it on him. Get a ring for his finger and sandals for his feet. Kill the calf that we've been fattening. We must celebrate with this feast. For the son of mine was dead and now is returned to life. He was lost, but now is found and one of the best lines in Scripture, so the party began. Isn't that good? So the party began. Meanwhile, the older son was in the fields working, doing what he should, right? When he returned home, he heard music and dancing in the house, and he asked one of the servants, what's going on? Your brother is back, and your father has killed the fattened calf. We are celebrating because of his safe return. The older brother was angry and wouldn't go in to this party. And then here's another great line. His father came out and begged him. We're going to see that both the younger son and the older son received the same treatment from the father. The younger son is, is the father runs towards him to spare him any shame. The older son is begged with. Like it, Jesus is saying in this parable, if you really want to get who I am and what my kingdom is like, you have to come into this party. Stop judging, stop doing, come into this party and you will get what I am all about. And here's the son's reply, all these years I've slaved for you and never once refused to do a single thing you told me to do. And all the time you never gave me even one young goat for a feast with my friends, Yet when you're this son of yours and this son of yours, isn't that good? Not my brother. This son of yours comes back after squandering your money on prostitutes. You celebrate by killing the fatted calf. His father said to him, look, dear son, you have always stayed by me and everything I have is yours. We had to celebrate this happy day for your brother was dead and has come back to life. He was lost, but now is found. And we read this story in its context and we get what it's about. We get it that it's the Pharisees and Jesus eating with the sinners and Jesus pointing towards what His kingdom will be all about. But just as we usually read Scripture, it's also about us. That this story is our story. The reason that the story of the prodigal son has captured the imagination and hearts for, for 2,000 years, more art has been done on this story than any other story in Scripture. It's probably the most familiar story in Scripture if you went and talked to, to somebody who didn't know much about God. It captures our hearts, it captures our imaginations because it's our story. It's told and retold and retold because it's our story. The images in it, we get. We get the Father waiting. We get the Father running towards the Son, not wanting to see Him shamed. 
We get the father wanting to include the older son. As we read the story, a lot of you get the younger son. That part of the story made sense to you. Rejecting the father. This sinful lifestyle. This living in shame of I'm not worthy. And a lot of us get the older son too. Kept the rules. In fact, loved the rules. And not wanting to be a part of this type of kingdom. If that's the way God works, I don't know that I'm into that. The story is our story. Again and again and again. It's the story of God and it's the story of us. Think about it. Think about the older brother. This, this Pharisee. So full of pride. The Bible calls it self-righteousness. Like he... He thought he knows or knew how God acted. And he began to put more and more rules about who God was and who God let in and who was out. And if you think about the Pharisees in the first century, eventually God began to look a lot like them. You see, the sin of the older brother is no better and no worse than the sin of the younger brother. Deciding to play God, deciding to say who's in and who's out is no better than the arrogance of the younger brother going off and living this crazy lifestyle. We get it because it's a lot of us. We're the older brother. But then think about the younger brother. This challenge we have of trusting and believing in God is often because we're the younger brother. His story starts with selfishness and it then goes to this life of self-pleasure and the results is what we see again and again and again. It's shame. It's the thing that keeps us from believing in God. Can God actually love me if God knows what I've done? Can God actually love me if God really knows what I've done? And it's the story as old as time. It's Genesis 1, 2, and 3. It's Adam and Eve sinning. And what happens after they sin when God comes in? They're hiding in shame. It's the story of humanity. It's the story of us. Can God really love me? And what this story says, and I believe what every one of us in here needs to hear, There's nothing you can do. There's nothing you can do. Whether it's judgmentalism and arrogance and pride, or if you come in here in shame wondering if God really knew who you are, and He does. There's nothing you can do that God's grace and love cannot cover. Please hear me say that again. There's nothing you can do, there's nothing you've done that God's grace and love cannot cover. I love this quote from Erwin McManus in his book Soul Cravings. He says, religion exists not because God loves too little, but because we need love so much. In the end, all religions misrepresent God. 
They either dictate requirements for love or simply become a requiem for love. I think many of us have rightly given up on God on the basis alone. We've been told that God is a reluctant lover and that his standards must be met before there can be any talk of love. This is lunacy. Love exists because God is love. Our souls will never find satisfaction until our hearts have found this love that we so desperately yearn for. That's Luke 15. That God looks at each one of us in this room, arms wide open, and simply says, all you have to do is open your arms to my embrace. One of my favorite pieces of art around the story of the prodigal son is this piece of art done by an Indian artist in the mid-1900s. And it's the beauty of the story of God wanting to embrace every one of us. I had a wedding yesterday afternoon in Wyndham, just out south of Wyndham. And on Friday night and yesterday, going to and from the wedding and the rehearsal, I could not get, not, not just Luke 15 out of my mind, but what does it mean for us? How do we embrace the God who runs towards us? And two really familiar passages from the book of Romans would not leave my mind. And they're these. Romans 3.23 says, You see, all have sinned. All of us have missed the mark. All have rebelled against God. All have sinned, and all their futile attempts to reach God and His glory fell. One of the th things you need to realize at Crossview is every one of us is broken and messed up and in need of God. Amen. No better, no worse. We are broken and messed up in need of God. And then my favorite passage in all of Scripture, Romans 5.8. But think about this. While we were wasting our lives in sin, God revealed his powerful love to us in a tangible way. The anointed one died for us. Luke 15 is the story of humanity. It's the story of us. And the invitation is the same. God with open arms says, will you trust me? There's nothing you've done. There's no shame too big. There's no pride or arrogance and judgmentalism too big that my embrace cannot forgive and love. Father, I pray, Lord, that this story would always be fresh, God, would always be new in our hearts and minds and imagination. When it ceases to be that, God, would we cry out for a new understanding of your love? So Lord, for some of us in our pride and arrogance, we think we have it all together and figured out. We know who you are. We think we've earned your grace. God, I pray that you and your mercy and grace would look at us. And Lord, that we would ask for your forgiveness and embrace your love. For those in this room, God, who are just overpowered by shame. Wondering if you can actually love God. I pray that in the same way they would return to you, repent of their sin, 
and embrace the love and forgiveness that only you can give. To the glory of your name we pray this.